And, of course, there's uh, the last book, the anthology, based on the guests who I've interviewed here on this radio show, and it's called uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World. It's out there, too, and it's received acclaim because it shows what a big umbrella goddess ideals uh, or, or, or sacred feminine ideals actually are. Uh, think of it. I mean, with contributors like Noam Chomsky, Laura Flanders of Grit TV, um, Gloria Felt of Planned Parenthood, Charles Eisenstein, uh, Gus uh, Zidarega, Jean Shinoda Bolin, and many, many more notable and new voices, uh, you know, are there in the anthology um, alongside names I'm sure you know and recognize. Uh, you should check these all out on my website, and if you like what you see, I hope you'll buy direct from me. I like how that rhymes. If you like what you see, I hope you'll buy direct from me. And if you do, uh, I'm offering a special giveaway. Uh, you buy two books, and you get Walking an Ancient Path for free. So just contact me, and I can make that happen for you. Yes, you heard right. Buy two books, and you get Walking an Ancient Path absolutely free. Uh, and your purchases um, uh, help me pay for the airtime here uh, on uh, Blog Talk. Uh, when you give the money to me rather than Amazon, um, it helps me continue to keep the show going. So think about me when you buy books for yourself uh, and your loved ones. And tonight uh, we have two very interesting guests. Uh, at the top of the hour, Deborah Cox uh, discusses wife material, misbehaving to freedom. Don't you love that title? Uh, it's a novel based on her own childhood in the Church of Christ. We'll discuss the lives of women, how femininity was approached or acknowledged within the church, how patriarchy affected women's lives and how the doctrine affected her personally. Deborah will talk about acts of disobedience as those of personal development for women struggling under the yoke of patriarchy, and she'll give us an inside look at what it's like to be a woman who escaped the sect of the Church of Christ through refusal to obey and conform. She sounds like one of us. Uh, Deborah is a psychologist, writer, and artist uh, who treats trauma survivors, particularly those who have experienced religious abuse. We'll be sure to discuss how fundamental religion creates this idealized form of women that excludes sex while getting girls dressed up and made up like little beauty pageant contestants uh, and put, putting all that pressure on these girls to be good and worthy you know, without ever asking what they really want. Uh, obviously, the Stepford wife comes to mind, and we'll discuss the men who seem to want obedient, slave-like beauty queens to raise their kids and ignore their failures rather than want equal partners, not even in the bedroom. So uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with that juicy topic. Uh, then in uh, the second half of the show, uh, Evans Lansing Smith is with us to discuss Romance of the Grail, the magic and mystery of uh, Arthurian uh, myth by Joseph Campbell, which Lance has edited. Uh, the book we'll discuss as part of the series of the Campbell Collection, and we'll discuss the beloved mythologist Joseph Campbell, his work. We'll delve into wasteland mythology, and we'll see if Campbell drew any uh, 
um, correlation or relationship between goddess worship and uh, the Arthurian legends and other themes in the book that will be of interest to those uh, interested in goddess spirituality and feminist critiques of religion, including uh, uh, anthropomorphizing, I can't get it out tonight, uh, pro and con. So, um, yeah, so I think we have a very interesting show Plan for you tonight. So let's uh, let's get right to it. Uh, I am going to uh, unmute Deborah, and uh, we'll begin our chat. I've I've already told you a good bit about her, and want to say, Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you, Karen. I'm glad to be here. Well, um, I I am so interested in talking about this topic, um, and um, you know, one of the things you know that I think is so important and I don't know if my listeners know it but uh, Ted Cruz um one of the you know guys running for president he is uh one of the evangelical dominionist Christians and I've had people like Rachel Tabachnik on the show who sort of um spilled the beans on um how crazy and dangerous so many of these dominionists are and and uh, I mean, dominionists, they believe that they were intended to have dominion over the earth and the rest of us here, and they would like nothing better than to have a theocracy. I wonder if your Church of Christ that you were in and escaped, um, is it anything to do with dominionist evangelical churches like Ted Cruz's church? That's a really great question. Um it might be more that way now than it was in the 70s. Um, when I was coming of age, there was a, um, a pulling out from um, government and current affairs. In fact, in in the 60s and 70s, you could find these bumper stickers around, um, and, and people in the Church of Christ would, would have them on their cars, and they would say, uh, don't vote. The lesser of two evils is still evil, um, and so they were really not wanting to play a part in in government at all. But I mm-hmm. do think that's changed. Um, I think that now there, there's um, there's a move toward more active participation, and, and dominion is a really good word because you know if you interpret the Bible in this very literal, inerrant kind of way. Um, and you take your your cue to be a dominator over nature, um, I guess it's just not a very far extension from that to say that maybe we're supposed to dominate the world uh, in general. Maybe we're supposed to be on top of everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I am really reaching back in my memory, and I should probably have Rachel come back on the show because uh, I had her way back when Sarah Palin was threatening on the scene. And because Sarah Palin is one of those, I think, um, uh, oh, with the governor governor from Texas who was also running for president, the one that's not too bright, uh, he's another – yeah, he's yeah, he's another one of those. 
Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, they they're they're like seven different areas they want to have dominion over, and um, you know, it's the press and it's the media and um, it you know it, it's and, and I can't remember what the seven mountains are, but I think they call them mountains that they want to have dominion over, and if they were successful, they would basically be um, you know controlling. Uh, society, you know, and and I don't see in a way where where they're too much different than some of the uh, extremist uh, Islamic groups. You know, extremism is extremism. Um, right. You know, right. you know, needing to have dominion and absolute control and not being able to tolerate right. anything but having it your way. I mean, I don't care what religion you're in. It's uh, it's a problem, uh, but but your your childhood was in the Church of Christ. Um, so, mm-hmm. it, does that like fall into like uh, the the subgroups of like Lutherans and Methodists and all of that? You know how we have all of these different subcategories uh-huh. of Christian. That's that's also a really good question because the Church of Christ sees itself as totally non-denominational, and that was a big push when I was growing up. But, the language was non-denominationalism. So they, they are a denomination unto themselves, but they have no central government, and they don't affiliate with any other Protestant groups. They are very much separatists who, uh, in general, feel that they have such a pure and unadulterated version of Christianity that they don't want it sullied by the likes of any, you know, Presbyterians or Methodists or any, anyone else. They, they very much keep to themselves. Okay. Now, how did they feel about uh, women's leadership in the church? I mean, could you have, I mean, well, first of all, was your leader in the church called a minister? I doubt that it was a priest, right? It was probably a minister or a what? Right, right. You could say minister or you could say preacher. Um, and that was preacher was actually the term that was used. There was, there was no organizing, um, you, you know, government or, or there, no bishops, no um, central committee or or anything. Um, and and I would say that one of the only organizing forces within this tradition was a set of colleges. And my dad taught at uh, two or three of them, and we moved. Um, so that he could have these these jobs teaching, and I'll, I'll say more about that later. He taught music, but um, so there was there was David Lipscomb College in Nashville. We lived there. That's a Church of Christ College. Now it's a university, and then um, Harding University in Searcy, Arkansas, and we lived there for quite a long time. Um, so there you have this complete community. It's like a bubble um, where. The, the, you go to school and to church and to work with all the same people who all yeah. subscribe to the same theology. And and a big central piece of that theology is that women are to remain silent. Okay, okay. So you had no women leaders in the church then. I, as I like to say, yeah. uh, I mean, I grew up in the Catholic bubble. And, you know, I like mm-hmm. to say the women were good for dull, dusting the altar but not teaching from it. <laughs> Uh, exactly. You know, yes. yeah. Uh-huh. So, so um, um, are there any prominent Church of Christ p- 
people that we would recognize out there on the world scene? Like, I don't know, I think of like Jerry Falwell and all of these guys, you know, the 700 Club guy, uh, or any of the mm-hmm. Church of Christ people that we would know from television or something? I'm trying to think. I, I don't I don't think so. Um, okay. I, I really, I'm, I'm not coming up with any right now. They, they okay. are famous within the Church of Christ. Um, there's some names that you would that you would maybe recognize um, as famous Church of Christ preachers, and if you're in that tradition, you would certainly know their names. But they have not made it to the the, the world stage like they have in some other traditions. Yeah, there's no yeah. there's no Billy Graham. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's another interesting piece. But there, there's a. Really, in, in the doctrine is is both um, official and unofficial. I, mean, I guess it's that way with every tradition. There's what's spoken out loud, you know, what's taught in words, and what's taught mm-hmm. through nonverbals and, and relationships. And I I would say that part of the unspoken or hidden curriculum would have to do with um, not putting yourself out on that world stage. Oh. So they so yeah. they weren't big on proselytizing or um they just did it qu- more quietly. They were very big on proselytizing. Um but maybe not on, you know, being on television. Right. Now, you know, you will see them. You'll see them on television, but they um another piece of the doctrine that is, a, is an identity piece for the Church of Christ is that you um, you don't have musical instruments in the worship. Oh. So everything is a cappella. That's what they're famous for. That's their uh, that's their calling card. There's no instrumental music in the worship, so there's no organ, there's no piano, and and what that tends to do. Um, there's some history behind this. What that tends to do is is sort of lead to a very plain. Um, church setting. My husband and I like to joke because you you can find the churches of Christ if you're traveling through the South and the Midwest United States. You can find the Church of Christ by the side of the highway, with uh, you know it's made of prefabricated materials and it is the most unassuming uh, plain building that you can imagine. It's not beautiful. And when you go inside, it's going to be very plain, and there's not going to be an organ. There's no statue. There's no cross. There's no, you know, no bells. There's no choir. Um, it's very plain. And that becomes part of the unspoken doctrine of the movement. Um, it becomes sort of this idea that things that are quite beautiful and, and intricate and lovely um, are to be suspect. We're, we're to be hmm. beware of those things. It's because it's too much like ego or um, or uh, hubris. Um, it is 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 there an explanation? There's a historical explanation that I think is very compelling. Around the time of the Civil War, or I guess just afterward, when there was this split between um, what's now the Disciples of Christ 
and this this modern church of Christ. And it happened over the issue of the organ. And in the introduction of life material, I've got a little scene in there where uh, somebody in Tennessee, a preacher, is stepping to the podium and he's making this announcement that we are not going to have instruments in our worship service and we're not going to be like those uppity people in Nashville or Memphis or, you know, the, the people who had more money had the stained glass mm-hmm. and the piano and, and all of this. And so the more rural um, congregations were, I think, jealous. And yeah. I think that, that jealousy turned into a piece of actual doctrine. I see what you're saying. So it's like because they... They, they demonized what they couldn't acquire, in a sense. Yes. Yeah, I get that. Well, I mean, you know, patriarchy did that with menstrual blood. You know, they thought menstrual blood mm-hmm. was powerful uh, and uh, had all of these myths around it. And, uh, and I feel like what they couldn't um, create themselves, what they couldn't control, they demonized instead, you know, to, yeah. to take, take its power away. Um, That's a great analogy. Mm-hmm. So, so let me ask you, um, and and then I want to get into your personal story. You know, I'm just trying to, you know, I, asking all of these questions to just kind of give listeners context. And I can't help it; I'm a movie buff. Um, Kevin Bacon played in that movie Footloose, and I remember they didn't have music mm-hmm. and they couldn't dance. It, it, would that have been Church of Christ? Was there, or were they against dancing too? You know, we wondered about that. When the movie came out, I think I was a senior in high school or something like that, and we were all talking about this movie, and, and we actually went to see it, and we said, this must be this must be Harding. This must be where we are. <laughs> uh, but I don't actually know. I don't actually know okay. if that's the... the okay. Yeah. So, um, so getting back to, you know, more to your story that uh, inspired you to write this, uh, this book. I mean, there's. I know there must be an interesting story here that you obviously, you know, the, the you know, I, I don't want to like read the last chapter first, but you obviously broke through the bubble. Um, you know, it, I mean, the fact that you're on the show, uh, you know, says that. Uh, but what was it like for you in that uh, cultural context? You know, when did you realize something was wrong and you were gonna misbehave? Uh, you know, t- to to break free. Well, I didn't realize it for a a long time. I I went through college. I went to, um, you know, Harding Academy High School and then then the college, um, Harding University, and I did all the things that I was supposed to do. Um, I even got married while I was there, and um, that lasted about five years. so I was very much trying to live that life and follow the script. Um, but it's funny, when, when I think about that, I, um, I see myself as this transplanted Church of Christ young woman um, at Texas Women's University. That's where I went to graduate school with my husband. <laughs> uh, took him along, made him move with me to Dallas and... Um, and so my friends there would laugh, and they would say, we remember the first time we saw you, and you were standing there in this jumper, this dress, 
and you had on pearls, and your hair was all fixed. And we were there in our jeans and our sweats and our flip-flops, and we were just like, what? where did you come from? And it's kind of, <laughs> I, I like thinking about that now because that's, that's where um, it all started to dawn on me that I was coming out of a culture um, and, and that I could let some of that shake off and I could look at it as, as culture. There were, right. um, there were lesbians, there were, there were gay men, there were um, Muslim women, there were all kinds of people that I hadn't been allowed to associate with or even exposed to before. Yeah, so at yeah. the age of you know, 24, 25, here, here I am making friends with Jewish people and atheists, and, and uh-huh. that really, it started all just cracking and falling off. At that point. So, so now, um, you now you said something that, in a way, is a little bit of a surprise. Um, you said that you took your husband with you, and he went along. <laughs> Was that kind of unusual in the sense that he followed you rather than the other way around? I think it was. Um, I think that there were things happening that I, I was already a feminist, and I didn't know it, which probably harkens back to my mother. I think she was always a closet feminist, and I certainly didn't understand her, but she, you know, she couldn't make her marriage work because she couldn't dumb herself down enough, and, and she couldn't keep her mouth shut enough, and so I I had a little bit of that in me, even back then, and I married someone safe, uh, someone who, uh, at the time, I thought, I thought it was a good match, but... Um, yeah, he was willing to come along on this adventure that I knew I needed to have. Wow. Um, and, you know, you, you're, as I hear you talk, you, you, uh, I, I, I'm sure you, many of my listeners are shaking their head as I'm shaking my head because um, it, that's, it, it's so similar for all of us who break through the bubble. You know, uh, you don't even know you were in a bubble, and then suddenly the world opens up to you, and you and you go, "What in the heck was that?" You know, was I asleep? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's yes. um, it, it's 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 uh, quite a journey. It's quite a journey, and uh-huh. so mm-hmm. so now let's talk a little bit about femininity. Um, um, in that, you know, in, in that uh, bubble of the Church of Christ, how was femininity um, approached? Yeah, it it really was a series of, of what I call double binds, where you are damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. There, either side of the, the issue cannot ever be accomplished. Um, for instance... Um, I think Deborah Tolman describes this uh, girls' and women's sexuality in terms of being sexy but not sexual. And that's something that um, you had alluded to earlier, that um, there's this pressure to be so, so pretty, so pretty and so um, desirable from a distance, but to be distant and to not ever, to not ever desire, certainly, Mm-hmm. Um, and then not to give in to someone else's desire either. There's no right. thought given to what your what your desire might be. 
Um, so there's so there's that. There's the the sexual double bind, and and then um, there's also this smart yet subdued double bind where you really are supposed to be, um, you know, make good grades, do well, have have what it's the Proverbs 31 uh, set of Set of characteristics. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but this woman is perfect. She she rises at dawn and she runs a business and she spins her you, you know she makes her own yarn and makes her own fabrics and um, she makes lots of money and her husband's really proud of her. She does everything perfectly, and yet um, she's a woman, so she's going to be hidden and subservient, mm-hmm. and she's not going to ever usurp her husband's. Um, leadership. And and you know you were you were talking about uh, a relative or someone you knew that um, uh, you know that in the Church of Christ they have that um, tradition where the dad gives a ring to their you know his virgin daughter and she promises to keep herself chaste. And what they have some sort of go to some sort of prom or whatever it is. What is that called? Do you do you, do you want to uh, maybe talk about that a little bit and and you know maybe elaborate on how you think that you know from a psychological perspective how that adversely maybe affects these young girls? Well, I can I can speak about the the impact. Um, it's a relatively new phenomenon. I think it's not something that that we did when I was growing up. And I actually think that it's a um, it's coming from an evangelical influence. The whole of Christendom is becoming more and more and more evangelical. So even the fundamentalists, like uh, the Church of Christ, which would not ever claim to be evangelical, it would you know it's it's more um, definitely more fundamentalist than evangelical, but. But it's being influenced by that movement, and I think that's where those rings come from, and the the prom or whatever that is. Um, but of course, it it fits with Church of Christ doctrine, and and what I did experience was heavy shaming around just the idea of extramarital or premarital sexuality, and witnessing people be disfellowshipped from the church for those kinds of things and uh, witnessing the shaming of girls and women who got pregnant out of wedlock, which is a great term. Um, So it was a very, very heavy, um, both spoken and unspoken doctrine around staying virginal until you're married. And then, yeah. of course, when you're married, and, and this was certainly my experience, you walk down the aisle and you say, I do, you're supposed to all of a sudden be able to have sex and be able to whatever please your husband. And um, I know that I had great difficulty making that transition. And now that I'm talking to a lot of women who, who grew up in, in the Church of Christ, it sounds like it's a very common problem to to have to walk down the aisle, say I do, and then go have sex after so many years of being taught that it was bad. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like they want you to flip a switch. 
you know um yeah. you've you've it's been taboo it's been uh something to avoid uh and now suddenly um you know i i guess you have to be the sex kitten in bed you know it's it's mm-hmm. like uh it's it's crazy when you think about it um yeah and and it's probably hard for the men too because um, they've probably been told the same thing. I mean, not that, I mean, you know, men have always had a double standard. You know, men could go do things that women couldn't, but uh, but maybe for them too, uh, maybe uh, there's there's almost the same sort of um, uh, switch flipping that has to happen. I think that's probably true. I, I think that's probably true. And, and I've heard tales of of couples that, for whatever reason, either either one of them, either the woman or the man, were not able to just get in there and have sex. And um, that years have gone by in some cases where the marriage has not been consummated. Um, and it might be that he was having just as much difficulty as she was. Right, right, right. Um, you know, it's it's sad when you think about it, Um I, I mean, really, because uh, I mean, how? I, I guess I'll state the obvious, but I mean, how do you even know if you're sexually compatible with mm-hmm. your partner? Um, you know, right. the people making up these rules uh, just weren't very smart. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. right. And 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 you know, we we talked a, a little bit of you know before we went on the air about um, these these guys who um well let's see how how would we say it you know we were i i I brought up the fact that i had interviewed ashra nominee a few weeks ago the muslim feminist and we talked about you know the men who want you know the islamic men muslim men who want to marry 10 year old girls or um you know we talked about um and well i mean it's in in you know the christian faith too i mean you have these mormons who were marrying off these young girls as soon as they um you reach uh, right. puberty you know what is it that it feels like you know i just have to say it what's wrong with these men that they feel <laughs> like they you know, have to marry a child. I mean, are they yeah. so um, or are they so lacking in self confidence um, down deep? Of course, they could probably never admit it on the surface, but are they so lacking in confidence down deep that they, you know, they have to marry a child? I, I, I mean, not to even mention the suggestion of pedophilia, you know, that uh-huh. comes to mind for me. Right, right, and. And I think that um, confidence is part of it, for sure. Do you remember the series Big Love from yeah. uh, a few years ago? I I loved that, and I and actually my my brother did too. We talked about it. He he would sit in front of that, and and you know I'm not a TV person or a movie person really, but that series gripped me, and we would get together and talk about how familiar it felt. We weren't raised Mormon, and we weren't raised in polygamy, but that way of life and the way in which the men related to the women and the way in which the women related to the women was so deeply familiar to us, and I think it came from the same problem. Um, and I'll refer to a theory here. There's a, there's a theory called relational cultural theory, and it comes out of 
the Psych of Women um, movement uh, in psychology, and I guess it was birthed at Wellesley uh, at the, the Jean Baker Miller um, Training Institute and Research Center. And so it's this whole, this whole idea about how relationships, if they are to feed us, if they are to energize us and, and be life-sustaining, they have to be mutual. Um, so both parties in a relationship have to share power pretty much equally and, and give uh, emotionally to the relationship in equal measure. And so traditions like the Church of Christ, I think, do, do men an equal disservice um, to the disservice that they do women because they train all of us to have non-mutual relationships. And so mm. hearkening back to this, this polygamy um, scenario, this wonderful, um, you know, family with all these crazy issues going on, the, the thing that's really so striking about it is even though Bill, uh, the, the patriarch, is a good guy, um, we like him. He can't have a very mutual relationship with any one of his wives because of the position that they're they're in. He's got to be the last word. He has to have the say so power, and they're not allowed to have other partners in addition to him. So it's a it's a non mutual situation by design. Mm-hmm. And he, if you watch him, he he suffers from that. Yeah. He's not, well, he's not being held accountable, to, you know, for his his issues. Well, you know, I've always thought, and I mean, and this is a woman speaking for what might be in a man's head, obviously. I mean, I, you know, got to, you know, uh, preface what I'm about to say by saying I realize that. But I would think that um, men... Some, I mean, of course, maybe not all men, but men probably get tired of having that burden of having mm-hmm. to be the last word. You know, maybe they want to share in partnership. You know, maybe they want to lighten their load. Um, yeah. I, I know, I, I know, I get. You know, I get tired when I feel like everything is always on my shoulders, and I don't have somebody to share it with. Um, I, 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 w- I would think men probably feel the same way, but stuff it because society mm-hmm. and religion and patriarchy tells them, well, that's what it is to be a man. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and, and so the men that that I observed growing up, and, and as I run into them now or or hear about their their sons they have a lot of them are big earners um but they're anxious and they're depressed and they have sexual compulsions a lot of them struggle with porn porn addictions and um and they have poor social skills they don't know how to talk to you well, and and do you think that stems back from? I mean, I I don't know how it was in Church of Christ, but I know I've seen in in some cultures where you know boys and girls just can't have natural, normal relationships, so they grow up not really right. knowing how to relate to the other sex. Absolutely. In fact, somebody once said in that milieu um, that girls and boys can't be friends, and men and women can't be friends. Obviously, fearing the the sexual potential there, mm-hmm. they, mm-hmm. just can't, they just can't be friends, which is, of course, utter nonsense. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um in the in the Church Church of Christ, how could you most clearly see um the effect of patriarchy in women's lives? Were there things that stood out for you? I guess there were lots lots of things that sort of um centered around marriage. Um you know, I was thinking about the literature that we were reading in our Sunday school classes. There was a book called um, Daughters of Eve, and it was written by Lottie Beth Hobbs. I, I'm sure she's no longer living. I'd be very surprised if she if she were. This was written in the, maybe the 60s, and the, it, it had a lot to do with Jezebel and what to avoid, um, you know, and, 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 and how to not be like Jezebel and also how to not be a gossip. Um, so lots of lessons around what not to do. Lots of um, lots of curtailed impulses, um, a lot of admonition to stifle natural creative impulses, all in a very um, loving. You know, the the intent I think was was loving, but it it was very fearful and very very stifling. And so um, these women, many of whom I I just I love. They're they're wonderful, and I, I still communicate with many of them. But they have been pinched and and crimped, you know, into a tiny tiny space. And they've mm-hmm. lived they've lived in a, in a tiny space. They've lived tiny lives, and they've they've been good girls. Yeah. And so so I would imagine, you know, the idea of just having a raucous. Uh, sexual time and having wonderful <laughs> orgasms is not something that even enters into their good girl minds. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. They're taking a lot of Prozac, I think, and they're um, they're taking you know a lot of a lot of medications, and they're probably buying a lot of um, really nice shoes. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I remember. I think it was in the Feminine Mystique. I think Betty Friedman said something about, um, uh, you know, the women who went to Brown places like Brown University, and then uh, get married and become wives, and they're vacuuming the house in their heels and pearls. And then take in their nerve pills to be able to get through the rest of the day. And, I mean, I remember, uh, I remember my mother and grandmother did that. And I wish I, wish I knew now, um, I, I wish I knew then what I know now to be able to say, Mom, tell me what that was about. Because I was too young, yeah. and, and now they're gone. So, I, you know, but I would love to pick her brain and say, what was so hard about your life? Tell me about, you know, where were, where were, you know, where were the, you know, what, what was what caused you to have to do that? You know, was it the little yeah. box you had to live in, or what was it? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, exactly. It takes a lot of energy to suppress anger, I think, and you know, it would hard, be hard to to live in this little box and not be angry on some level. Yeah. So I think that a lot of that comes from the suppression of anger and the suppression of, of sexual energy probably, too. Um, we were talking about disobedience earlier, and, um, you know, diso- disobedience takes 
courage, and it takes having kind of a self, and sometimes it takes being aware that you're angry and you want something different. So, so let's, go, let's that, go. Yeah. Well, well, let's go there because I mean that's the title of your book, Wife Material: Misbehaving to to Freedom. How did how did you start misbehaving? You know, what were some of the rules you started to break? Well, the first one was going off to graduate school. I wasn't supposed to do that. Um, and and then after that, you know, it all sort of unraveled. Being there, I, uh, like I mentioned before, I sort of came out of the bubble. And then I, I think the biggest thing then was leaving that marriage, that first marriage. Um, there's so much put into that, and so much is riding on your being able to get engaged and get married while you're still in, in Christian college and, you know, find that Church of Christ mate, and um, I, I blew right out of that, and it was a big scandal, I think, for my family. So that, you know, that was... The, the biggest and most obvious disobedience. Now, but what I about children? Were, 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 did you have children? I mean, could you be childless by choice in the Church of Christ? <laughs> um, so I, I didn't have any children in that first marriage. I do have a, a child now. Um, but nobody would do that. You, you wouldn't hear about that. In fact... I remember um, when I was at Texas Holmes University, there was someone there studying the choice to be childless, and I remember just gaping at the idea. You mean people actually decide not to become mothers? That's, <laughs> that's done? I mean, I just couldn't even wrap my brain around it. <laughs> and I guess <laughs> now looking back, it's amazing to think that you – um, couldn't wrap your brain around it, you know. I mean, I know. once you got free. <laughs> I know it's it's really something. So when did you know? How and when did you first become aware of patriarchy and gender issues? Was it all because of that liberal college? And it probably wasn't a liberal college. You said you were at what a Texas? Did you say Texas A and M? Texas Women's University in Denton, oh, okay. Um which is a wonderful incubator if you if you need to come out of a patriarchal upbringing and you and you need to be nurtured by women it's a wonderful place to be i i loved it i loved my my courses i loved my professors and um this <laughs> is one time in one of the very first classes that i took which was the psych of women um, there was an older woman there talking about how she was another student. She was talking about mammograms, and she just had one, and how painful it was, how awful it was, the cold, the metal. Um, and she said, you know, if men had to have mammograms, we would be able to get them at gas stations and drive through <laughs> windows and and the laughter, so other women just laughed at that and thought it was just wonderful. And I remember just watching them laugh and realizing that I was in a very different kind of place 
mm. and that other people had very different notions about who they were as women. Yeah, yeah. Well, lucky for you, lucky for you, you uh, you broke free. It, it is well. You said you know your family was scandalized. Have they gotten over it? Maybe. Um, my mom's come a long way, and uh, she actually lives here in, in Springfield now with us. And um, she she is slowly kind of coming out of that. She retired from Harding, and you know, so she spent longer there than I did. And uh, and more of her life was spent in the Church of Christ than than my life. Um, so I think it's harder for her, but uh, she she's getting there. Now, in your book, um, there's you have art in a lot of the story. Um, how does you know why is that so important in your characters' lives? Yeah, this is a central piece too. So my parents were both um, symphony violinists, and they were both music professors. And it was so ironic to grow up in a milieu where the, the instrumental music is not allowed into the, you know, it's not a part of things. It's, um, when I know good and well from observing my parents and, and, and being in music my whole life, that that's where God lives, you know, that's, <laughs> music is God. I, I, knew, I knew that from a very early age, so, um, you know, I think, I think my dad, even though he was very stuck in the Church of Christ, I think with his violin, he was always searching for the divine. I think he was really trying to connect through his art. Mm-hmm. So and, it, and it was almost it, it was almost like a a, a way to channel um, that creativity that maybe was stifled and suppressed. Um, because you know, hearing you talk, it feels like everything had to be tamped down. You know, uh, yeah. you couldn't get too excited. You know, uh, because heaven forbid, one thing might lead to another. But in art, um, it was almost like a safe. Um, a, a safe way to channel creativity or emotion yes. or yes, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's very ironic. I I remember that we would sometimes go to church on a Sunday morning and sit through that stifling experience, and then get in the car and drive fifty miles to the nearest metropolitan area where we would be involved with the symphony for the rest of the day and so I would be sitting you know there with my siblings and we would just be soaking up Mendelssohn and Beethoven and and I remember really feeling that and knowing that my parents if they could be honest about it loved that more than Jesus <laughs> yeah. Well, it, they just and they probably led a very con- they probably led a very conflicted life, 
But, you know, I, I mean, I've talked to women who were Mormons, and I'm sure maybe it was no different for you and Church of Christ. Everything in their entire life centers around the church, their social life, mm-hmm. their business, their friends. There is no way out, really, because all, uh, all of your networking, every facet of your life is somehow connected to the church. So you can't mm-hmm. just walk away. You just can't reject it. Uh, because you know there you you know you have to sort of toe the party line and not um, and, and obey all the rules. Yeah, and you know that you're going to be rejected by your family of origin if you step out of this. So there's a heavy toll to pay. So so what um, what caused you to? Uh, to write the book Wife Material, which, let me just say, is the story of Elizabeth Campbell growing up in the modern Church of Christ. Is it sort of uh, uh, autobiographical? Very much. Um, it's very much autobiographical, but it's not a memoir. I um, I started it as a memoir. I thought, I'm going to write an expose, and it was, was kind of angry for a while, um, this took a decade to write, by the way, so it, it changed a lot over time. And I, I gradually came to realize um, that I couldn't fully tell the story of this culture if I just relied on my own firsthand experience. So I had to borrow um, a lot of stories from, from other people and, and, you know, talk to people and try to uh, make stuff up that, that hewed emotionally to the truth. Um, but yeah, I think I sort of accidentally stumbled into writing it. I was I was studying women's relationships with women in the context of beauty culture, and I was trying to write that story. Um, that was you know a series of of focus groups and and dozens of interviews, and I was writing a nonfiction book about that. And um, my agent at the time said, Deborah, I think you need to write about this happening as you grew up, as you experienced it directly. And when she said that, I realized that what I actually was trying to do was tell my Church of Christ story. Yeah. Yeah. Now, was, is, was Church of Christ like the... <clears throat> quiverful movement in that, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I've had women say that they were told in the quiverful movement that uh, their role was to birth babies, and uh, when their bodies could no longer birth babies safely, well, if they died in childbirth, they'd just be a martyr to Christ. You know, it, it wasn't like they had an option to kind of stop birthing babies. Uh, was it quite that bad? It wasn't quite like that, um, but that's an element that, you know, is very close. That's, that's close in there. Um, that's a, I see that as a more evangelical piece that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's maybe coming along more recently. So if if and now if I'm starting to get too personal here, please just feel free to say no. I don't want to go there. But how did so you see so you got divorced, um, and then you met I guess your current husband. How was life different? Mm-hmm. Was is he part of the Church of Christ or was he an outsider? How did life change for you? 
he was very much an outsider, and I think that um, helped me a great deal. He told me that his karma ran over his dogma, and <laughs> he, <laughs> Joe is a psychologist uh, as well, and he listened, and he he cared. He was um, so very so very tender, and he and he actually cared what I thought. Um, and he also was my intellectual equal. And I think, I think that's an important part of how I came to be with Joe, because I had really dumbed myself down for so well, I, I really learned that lesson so well. It was just a part of my, my bones. So just the way, the way I moved about in the world was to not to not know what I knew. And, yeah. um, you know, that came out academically. That came out in conversations. It still comes out. It's still, it's still a recovery process to, to know what I know. I have to put it on paper first. But Joe um, drew that out of me, and our conversations helped me know what I knew. Right. Um, and so that was just a huge, huge turning point. You know, I, I don't know whether there's <clears throat> any uh, correlation here, but, you know, I, a thought just popped into my head. You know, it seems like the country has become so dumbed down. Um, I remember when Sarah Palin hit the stage, it felt like people almost reveled or were proud of their um, lack of intellectual curiosity. You know, it's almost yeah. like... You know the we don't want to be like you uh, smart ass liberals. You know just we'll we'll be yeah. you know we'll be dumbed down with our beer and our tailgate parties and we don't have to know facts and stuff like that. And yeah. and I, I and I almost wonder if uh, I, I, is it the educational system or could it be the, the influence of the church? Like like you're saying, you know, I mean, I know that obviously you can't question too much and not have, um, you know, cognitive dissonance, you know, when you're, you know, when you're in these religions, obviously, uh, to a certain mm-hmm. extent anyway, especially if, you know, you're a literalist. But I, I don't know, I guess I just wonder if the dumbing down, you know, we can lay some of the blame at, at religion's doorstep, you know, for almost wow. making it. You know, mm-hmm. it, maybe that's too big of a generalization, but um, I don't know. I guess I just wonder yeah, about that. I, You know, I wonder, too, and I wouldn't have gone there automatically, but as you're saying that, um, the the masses are easier, easier to control mm-hmm. if they are not thinking too intricately mm-hmm. or, or too up close. And you know that that parallels the whole idea of no instrumental music for us. We're we're not those uppity people, um, and then eschewing this thing that is so complex and and gorgeous. This you know the sounds that you can produce with with instruments um, that are so inspiring. It, it's kind of like you push that away, so you don't have to see how how complicated and rich and beautiful it is. Maybe it's it's just frightening, and and we're we're easier to control. We're, we're more sheep-like if we're um, yeah. not being challenged yeah. like that. 
Yeah. Well, in 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 life is life is simpler. You know, the idea of ignorance is bliss comes to mind. You know, because I, I know it, life has gotten more complicated and more difficult. Uh, I think sometimes the more knowledge you have, you know, it's uh, you know you can't take a back seat with everything. Maybe you have to have an opinion and take a stand. I mean, I think about where yeah. I lived in the South. Most of the people you know, grew up, worked, and died within a 50-mile radius. Now, me, I was I was different. I wanted to see the world. Well, I kind of thought, mm-hmm. well, who does, she think she, who does she think she is, you know? Why, why, would you, <laughs> yeah. why would you want to go do those things, you know? Uh, yeah, why would you want to, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, you know? That's true, that's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think well, there's a natural... Um, you know, inclination. I think that as we as we move in our spiritual development, we're actually drawn to those things, so those adventurous experiences and complex thought and and art. Well, yeah, and I think for me, you know, when I discovered goddess spirituality and I realized what, and I understood patriarchy and all of that sort of gender issues and the role religion played, I I had that anger, too, in the beginning, like you said, you know, your book started out really angry and... Um, and, And I guess I felt, it, but it changed me in the sense that I wouldn't take anything for granted anymore. I had to question everything then because I felt like what else was I not being told if I didn't go look for it, you know? Yeah, I I lost you there for a minute, so so you couldn't take anything for granted. And yeah, I, I, I felt like I couldn't take it. I, you know, if they could sweep something as big as the sacred feminine beneath the rug, and so many people don't even know about it, then what else are they keeping from me? You know, what else do I need to go out into the world and look for and discover because maybe it doesn't right. benefit benefit the status quo for the masses to know, you know? Right. I'm having that feeling reading your book right now. Um, yeah, I'm just... Every page has something on it that I think must follow up on this. <laughs> Which, are you talking about Goddess Calling or the anthology? Yeah, yeah Goddess Calling. Mm-hmm. Goddess Calling, yeah. yeah. No, I, I yeah, be, be, yeah, I mean, uh, you even, you know, I, at the risk of saying I'm a conspiracy theorist now, um, you know, maybe a little bit I am because I don't just take uh, you know, to take it uh, explanations at face value anymore. You know, there's always there's so many agendas at play. You know, who's who's spinning the story? <laughs> you right, know? right. So yeah. Well, um, mm-hmm. I know we're we're getting to the end of our time here. In fact, I see um, I see Lance is on the switchboard, and I'm going to have to ask him for just a little bit uh, more patience because I want to wrap this up with you. Um, on your website, you say development begins with an act of disobedience. So what would you like your readers and your clients to understand about disobedience as an act of personal development? That's a, a favorite area of mine. Um, I love the term. I love the idea of, of rebellion, um, uh, and I tell my clients that um, acting out in in a healthy way is just the best thing that you can do when you're trying to create change in your life. 
um, you don't want to keep conforming because what you've been taught is is probably that uh, conformity. And so disobedience takes you from received knowledge where someone is giving you your knowledge to an actual integrated kind of knowledge where you, you begin to know what you know and you act on that. And until we can do that, um, we, we are still sort of part of this undifferentiated ego mass that is either our church or our family. When we disobey, we step out of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And somehow you have to figure out a way to do that safely uh, without it costing you too much. Or maybe you decide that the cost is worth it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and you just take a flyer. You just leap out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was teaching cakes for the Queen of Heaven um, to a group at the Goddess Temple uh, not that long ago. And at, at when we took the break, I noticed um, one of the women was actually sobbing over in the corner, hoping no one would see her. And I went over and, you know, sort of gently inquired, you know, how she was. And she said... Um, she said, what I'm learning here is, is so inspirational. She said, but the sad part about this is I know if I were to actually act on any of this, I would have to turn my life upside down. And she mm. said, it scares, it scares me to death because I, I, now that I know, how can I not know it? You know, you can't, you know, it, you know, it's like once you discover this, then it, it, it's sort of like, uh, there's no turning back. You have to keep moving forward, I think, or you end up taking yeah. the nerve pills or the, um, uh, you know, I mean, can you imagine those women from brown reduced to vacuuming the floor in their high heels and pearls, you know? You know, and I think that's where our support of each other comes in, and, and that's why I'd love to hear about the Goddess Temple, and I love that we have this online discussion group and, and that we're having this conversation now because I think women have to support each other in doing that. That's why our relationships with each other matter so much. We have to sort you know, of buffer each other. In the yeah, yeah, because there's there's problems there. I mean, Phyllis Chesler writes about women's inhumanity to women, and, um, you know, we really do need to be there for one another, not in competition with one another. That That's a very good point, you know. Um, well, my final question, and uh, then we're going to have to wrap it up, Deborah. And I've so enjoyed the conversation. Um, for women in religious groups like Church of Christ uh, who might read your book, um, what would you want them to know? I think what we just said um, is is so key. If they can talk to each other openly, starting in small groups, two or three, and and be very candid about their experiences and learn to really listen to each other and support each other. There's so much power in that, um, power to, to disobey. Yep. I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Deborah, how um, how do listeners uh, get your book? Um, and uh, please please tell us how they find it. Tell us the title again. And um, you know, uh, you know, this is this is your sure. moment. And anything I forgot to ask you, if you want to throw it in here, 
um, this is the last opportunity for tonight. Okay, okay, wonderful. Yes, so um, wife material can be found on, it's an e-book. There, there are no print copies um, right now, but you can download it at Amazon or um, iBooks or BarnesandNoble.com. Okay. And we forgot yeah. to get into the beauty culture, but uh, we ran out of time. Maybe we'll have to expand the conversation and have you back another time, and we'll uh, take on yeah. some of the stuff we, we ran out of time for tonight. <laughs> I'd love that. I'd love that. It's been so fun. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. And I'm so glad you're out there helping women um, escape as you uh, as you did and um uh, I, I know there are probably listeners who uh, so benefited from hearing what you had to say tonight. So thank you for writing the book and yeah. for coming on the show and bearing your soul. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. And I, I enjoyed it, too. Good night, and I'm sure we'll be in touch. Okay. Good night. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, dear listeners, uh, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I think you probably did. Um, And remember, if you enjoy this kind of programming, uh, Blog Talk is not free uh, for hosts like me. We see more and more how vital uh, independent media is becoming uh, as mainstream media has uh, given up on journalistic integrity because of their corporate owners or they just really don't talk about anything that's really important. I mean, Who cares what the Cardassians are doing, right? Um, So your contributions uh, are needed and welcome uh, because I do pay out of my pocket to give the wonderful guests that come on the show each week a platform to teach and uh, share their wisdom. Uh, So if you would like to make a contribution to help pay for the show, uh, there are PayPal buttons on my Goddess Store page. Um, You just go to uh, KarenTate.com, and on the Goddess Store page, all the way down at the bottom, there's a PayPal button that allows you to uh, make a contribution. And, uh, of course, you can always send a check, too. And... um, That way it helps me continue to do all the free things that I do, like the show and the Goddess Calling audio book series you can find on YouTube and the free meditations on my website, uh, as well as the free classes and talks and interviews that uh, continue the conversation and uh, change the conversation. So please enjoy it all and uh, share the liberation theology of the sacred feminine uh, with your friends. So I uh, I see our our second guest is uh, is here with me now. Uh, we have uh, Evans Lansing Smith with us. He's going to discuss romance of the Grail, uh, the magic and mystery of the Arthurian myth uh, by Joseph Campbell, which he edited. Uh, we'll get into uh, Joseph Campbell, the beloved mythologist. Uh, we'll delve into wasteland mythology and. Um, if Campbell drew any relationship between goddess worship and the uh, the legends of uh, King Arthur. So, um, by way of his bio, let me introduce you to, uh, to Evans Lansing Smith, and then we'll start our chat. Uh, Evans, uh, or Lans, as I think he likes to be called, uh, he's the chair and co-core faculty of the Mythological Studies Program at Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, California. He's the author of 10 books, 
10, yes, a dozen, almost a dozen, including a recent volume of poems and numerous articles on comparative literature and mythology. He has his Ph.D. from the Claremont Graduate School and M.A. in Creative Writing from Antioch International, London and Dublin, and a B.A. from Williams College. In the 70s, he traveled with the late Joseph Campbell on tours of northern France, Egypt, and Kenya. What a lucky guy. He has taught at colleges and universities in Switzerland, Maryland, Texas, and California, and he's the recipient of awards for distinguished teaching and publication from Midwestern State University and the Pacifica Graduate Institute. Uh, He's also lectured on mythologies of the underworld at the uh, C.G. Jung Institute in Switzerland and on goddesses of the Mediterranean in Italy. Uh, His edited volume of Joseph Campbell's writings and lectures on the Grail romances uh, are published now, I believe, uh, in the Collected Works series by New World Publishing. uh, came out in November of 2015. That might actually be... uh, Lance, is that the book we're actually talking about tonight, Romance of the Grail? Yes, that's right. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much uh, for being with me tonight. Um, I know Joseph Campbell... Um, love him. I'm an associate with the Joseph Campbell um, uh, roundtables and sponsor talks in uh, Venice Beach and Irvine and just feel like the continuing education is uh, is so important. Um, it, but, but Joseph Campbell was kind of controversial, wasn't he? I mean, didn't he kind of, um, you know, didn't some, some in academia sort of thumb their nose at him? Well, you know, academia is like any other field of endeavor. When you move from one generation to the next, there's are you know there are changes that occur. Uh, when he was at his prime in the 70s and earlier, he was widely celebrated by people from all over the academic world, and uh, for his achievements as an interdisciplinary, humanities-oriented scholar. And then there was uh, uh, the transition, I like to call it the French invasion, with, with no disrespect, when the uh, deconstructionist, uh, post-structuralist movement, uh, Derrida, Lacan, Foucault, and so forth, came onto the scene. And they had a very ori- uh, different orientation to the study of mythology. And uh, a profound, if uh, somewhat unfortunate, impact on academic politics. Uh, which involved uh, um, a movement away from from the previous generation's work, people like Joseph Campbell. Uh, he wasn't the only one, however, who was sort of cast out uh, by the younger generation. There was also, there were also people like Northrop Fry, uh, Carl Jung, and even uh, you know people like Mercier Eliade. Uh So things change, and academic mm-hmm. politics are as uh, difficult and ruthless as any other corporate political environment. Yeah. So the uh, controversies and criticisms of Campbell's work, uh, by the way, uh, Maria Gimbutas, the great scholar of goddess imagery at UCLA, right. was really subject, subjected to the same kind of, mm-hmm. uh, of what I would call abusive politics of academic life. Yeah. And that, that, uh, I think that's the controversy that you're referring to. 
Well, part, yeah, part of it. I mean, I, and, but yet, by the same token, you know, you almost wonder if there was a jealousy, too, at play because he was so beloved by the average man. I, I think about, you know, that popular series with Bill Moyers, you know, and he really sort of yeah. brought mythology to the average person and maybe made it relevant instead of, you know, so that the average person could understand what he was talking about and their eyes wouldn't glaze over, you know. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. And, and, I, and I remember he, I saw a quote uh, he said about Maria Gimbutas that her work was like the Rosetta Stone, you know, yeah. unlocking uh, portions of, yeah. of history. Um, yeah. And, but I, I, I think she fared worse than he, though. Um, I, I could be wrong about that, but uh, but of course she was yeah. a woman. She had a, a double double strike against her. <laughs> Quite possibly, yes. The patriarchal orientation of archaeology in her day, and the politics that went with people like Colin Renfrew, who was the head honcho. It, it's really rather disgraceful the way she was treated. Uh, after her amazing achievement and contribution to the subject of goddess-oriented imagery. Uh, it's, it's a very sad story. So do you um, think uh, her name will ever be cleared, so to speak? I mean, are, are there any shifts in thinking? I mean, you said things change. I know mythology yeah. certainly changes. Yeah. Well, there's no need for her name to be cleared by the people who discredited her. Uh, those are the people whose names now need to be sort of cleared. But I, I think there is a, a, a gradual shift uh, in, in academic studies in the humanities that's returning to the kind of uh, a transdisciplinary uh, field of studies in the humanities that will bring back the extraordinary achievement of people like Maria Kambutas and Joseph Campbell his work went well beyond the boundaries of academic specialization, and that was a big part of the issue. Uh, but yeah. also, as you say, uh, he had the most extraordinary ability to inspire people from all walks of life and in, in an amazing variety of vocations who picked his work up and moved it in directions that, you know, the academics uh, can't even imagine due to a lack of creativity on their part. Yeah. Um, so you know, we owe him a great, great debt. And yes, I do think the wheel is turning uh, in, in, in interesting ways to return to an evaluation. Well, it's almost as almost as if they were ahead of their time. You know, they were blazing a trail, and you know, it's the one that goes through the trail first with the machete. They're the ones that get all the dings. You know, yeah. um, they're yeah. the ones that get all the scratches and scrapes, and the people following behind them. Well, they have a clear path. Um, That's right. I don't know. Yeah. Somehow that that metaphor works for me. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Campbell's Campbell's metaphor was that of the maverick. You know, the, the calf that wanders beyond the halls of academia into fields unknown. And mm-hmm. uh, it's all kinds of wonderful discoveries as a result that really shift the boundaries of the subject. So um, getting back to the, the Campbell collection and, um, you know, this this particular a romance of the Grail in particular. Um, how and when did you start work on that? Well, I actually started in about the year 2005 
although my travels with Joseph Campbell go back to uh, 1976 and continued sort of work with him. So it's a long period of, of engagement with his work uh, and, and interest. But in 2005, I began to teach at the Pacifica Graduate Institute, first of, as an adjunct. And uh, at that time, I started to poke around in the uh, Special Collections Library uh, and the uh, uh, Opus Archives, which houses the uh, papers of Joseph Campbell at Pacifica. And I discovered uh, his uh, master's thesis that was written in the 1920s uh, for a, a great Arthurian scholar named Roger Sherman Loomis. And uh, I realized that that had never been published. Uh, so I began to be interested in uh, creating a publication for that work and started out by doing an annotated bibliography of all of the books in his library that had to do with the uh, Arthurian legends, the Middle Ages, the Grail romances. And it came to the point where I proposed it to the Joseph Campbell Foundation as a publication in their collected work series. Um, at which point the project expanded considerably. This would be about 2010 after five years of work in the Special Collections Library. Uh, when I was asked to expand the volume to include uh, really all of his uh, lectures associated with the uh, Arthurian legends and the Grail romances uh, of the Middle Ages. So from about that time on, I shifted from his library to the extraordinary collection of his uh, lecture notes and papers and research notes and so forth that are all uh, housed in the Opus Archives of uh, Joseph Campbell's work and uh, figured out how to put together a volume that would incorporate his various approaches to the mythologies of the, the Grail Quest and the Middle Ages. And that, that was another... Uh, Five years or so of work. Um, so you you are a, you are a fan. I mean, um, there are probably yeah, few indeed. people who know know his work so well as you. Yeah, I really learned a great deal of poking around in those incredible papers. You know, uh, his his breadth and depth of his scholarship in terms of the detailed studies of the cultural context of the Grail romances. Uh, is, is is quite extraordinary, uh, and his ability to synthesize an, you know an, an encyclopedic range of materials and apply them to the stories in his printed published books of the time was extraordinary enough. But then for him to be able to synthesize that work and present it to a wide collective audience, uh, such as those associated with the power of myth was really another extraordinary thing about uh, his, his abilities uh, yeah. as a scholar, but, but as an educator. He fundamentally was an educator. Yeah. Um, so it was a wonderful experience to find the details of his work. Well, and this had to be a labor of love for you because, you know, uh, most of us authors know you certainly don't get rich writing books. <laughs> Unfortunately true. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you can't retire. You can't retire on your income from your books. No, no. You might not even be able to buy groceries for the month. But 
Um, so, you, but you, now you had the good fortune of actually traveling around with him. Is there anything that sticks out for, for in your memory that um, something people you know would would find interesting to know uh, that came to light in those travels with him? Well, uh, yeah, um, there was one particular day when we were traveling in the territory associated with Merlin and Vivian in uh, north-central Breton region of France. And we had an absolutely marvelous lunch at a small pub. And during the lunch, I was sort of the one elected to go up and break the ice because the team that put the trip together were being very, very protective. And they, they were not really allowing access. So I was the youngest person in the group, and so I got elected to go and sit down and talk to him. And it, it doesn't take much to break the ice with Joseph Campbell. Uh, he was such an extraordinarily friendly, uh, communicative man that before I knew it, we were having a marvelous conversation about the beautiful story of Merlin as an old man and his relationship to a young woman named Vivian and his transmission of his wisdom to her under very special circumstances, which was supposed to have occurred in this particular forest that we walked into after lunch and uh, sat down on some fallen oaks. And and uh, Joseph Campbell told the story, and, and he was a direct descendant of the Irish-Celtic oral storytelling uh, tradition. So, as you can imagine, it was a completely spellbinding uh, experience to hear him tell those stories. And Vivian is essentially a, a kind of a goddess of the wilderness. And uh, she is the goddess who, in some ways, in many ways, is the source of Merlin's uh, wisdom. And it was very characteristic of Campbell to recognize the importance of the goddess figures and their primacy. Uh, in the transmission of these deep spiritual traditions. So he told this marvelous story, and as, as he was telling the story, I was looking around and I was seeing those little mushrooms with the red caps and the white specks on them, uh, which I recognized as the Amanita muscaria mushrooms on the work of Gordon Wasson. And they're, of course, associated with fairy tales and myth and transcendent uh, visions induced by their ingestion. And I, I had I had never eaten those mushrooms. It was the late, you know, early 80s, late 70s. And he saw me looking at those things, and he turned to me and he said, Lance, don't eat those. If you do, we'll never get to Paris, which I thought was an absolutely marvelous comment. Um, so that, that was one of many moments of kind of direct transmission of, of a very beautifully energetic, vital wisdom that that he carried with him. And right. I had similar moments in uh, in Egypt when I traveled the next year where we went to see the Valley of the Kings and the pyramids and so forth. So uh, there, there are many moments that stand out uh, from from that particular trip. I, I think especially one moment when we went down into one of the tombs and uh, there was a high school field trip from the kids in Cairo who were there. And when we came out of the tomb, all these kids were lined up on either side of this pathway, and they just burst, 
burst into applause as he emerged from the tomb. And uh, his response to them was that huge, glorious smile and his ability to connect in that particular moment, I think, uh, really sticks with me from that the trip to Egypt. Well, you know, as you described that time in in France, um, it, uh, it it in my mind it sort of harkened back to so many of the sacred journeys we've taken to sacred sites of uh, of of the divine feminine. It's almost as if you guys were on a sacred journey, in a sense. Oh, we oh we we certainly were, and it uh, it was a beautiful hero journey cycle from Paris. To Rouen, to Mont Saint Michel, out to the standing stones of Karnak, which are the very ancient Neolithic sites that goddess worship, and then back up to the Loire Valley, uh, to Angers, where the beautiful Apocalypse tapestries are, and then we rode on from there uh, in, into Chartres to see the great cathedral, mm-hmm. and I, I was sitting with him on the ride. And he was telling me about all these chateaux that he was seeing in the Loire Valley everywhere he looked. And every time he pointed out one, I couldn't see it. But he did. And when we pulled into Chartres, he, he said, I feel very chez moi, you see, uh, meaning I feel very at home here. Because when he was 26 years old, he spent many, many days in the cathedral at Chartres, uh, identifying all of the figures of the stained glass and the stone. And uh, I was 26, you know, when he told me that story. And it it really was a a revelation for me, the the great richness of medieval culture uh, in all of its manifestations. Yeah. uh, When you say sacred journey, um, another thing about him was uh, he didn't just communicate the information. Uh, which he had an enormous reservoir of, but he also gave you a direct experience of the of the energy of the spiritual wisdom associated with the stories. Yeah. So uh, that that's really the extraordinary thing I think about his connection to this deep level of spiritual wisdom that he was able to communicate so powerfully yeah. and beautifully. Well, and and uh, I didn't know about his lineage as a you know storyteller. It, it it makes such perfect sense that he could keep people so captivated in that uh, uh, in in the Bill Moyer series. Um, is that still available? Well, I, I I gather that it just had a, a rerun a couple of years ago, a kind of celebratory uh, special edition uh, that was produced. And uh, so that yes, it's, and of course it's still available uh, on Amazon, and and uh, it's, it's a well, quite a quite a wonderful series. Tell what I'm sorry, you said the the name of it uh, before, and and it slipped my mind that quick. Um, uh, if you would please repeat it for listeners, uh, so that they might be able to look for it. Well, the series is called The Power of Myth with Bill Moyers. Yeah. And, okay. You know, it, it first aired right around the time that Campbell died in 1987 in Hawaii. And it was an enormous uh, success and it drew many people to the study of myth. And uh, it, there was some kind of rerun of the series a few years back. I don't know much about it. PBS 
would be able to tell you more about the uh, the rerun of the series. Was it um, was it Campbell who? I, I don't know if this is a direct quote from anyone, but it makes me wonder if if, if it is a direct quote. Uh, was it Campbell's quote? Was he the one who said that mythology shapes our culture? Well, yes. I, I don't know if it's a direct quotation, but he was very well aware of the importance of of collective mythologies for informing and shaping uh, many cultures throughout the course of history uh, in, in the sense that every culture has a kind of... Uh, of an image, a mythological image that gives it uh, a sense of meaning and coherence and relationship to the other members of that particular culture. Right, um, right. So, yes, absolutely, myth has that important function. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that I, I'm really interested in doing these days is actually either reinterpreting or actually rewriting goddess myths to uh, you know, taking them you know, taking them out of a patriarchal context, to actually use those as a tool to maybe give humanity a new path forward, you know, and yeah. um, it, 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 is that is that being is that a common thing to do, um, or is or is that uh, I mean, yes, haven't uh, mythologists been doing that all along? Well, yes. I mean, when I was in graduate school in the uh, 1979 to 86, there there were many in the feminist movement who were uh, retelling the mythologies from a female point of view. And um, I'm sorry, many of their names escaped me at this particular moment, but the endeavor to uh, recover a kind of orientation to the myths from the point of view of the development of the feminine, mm-hmm. was uh, was very important in the in that period in the early uh, early 80s, at a time when Maria Gambutas was at the, really quite celebrated for for her work, and right. it's also that when the the great um, first generation Jungian women were uh, producing very important books focusing on the recovery of the divine feminine. Uh, people like Esther Harding, for example. Uh, later on, people like Nora Hall. And uh, uh, m- male uh, male Jungians, like Edward uh, Whitmont, uh, were, were writing about the importance of the grail romances in the Middle Ages for their recovery of the repressed images of the divine feminine which had been in some way um, sort of obscured by the patriarchal patriarchal orientation of the church are they they're, still they're, alive oh, uh, Noor Hall is and she's a wonderful writer um, my my colleague and good friend Saffron Rossi uh, here at uh, Pacifica uh, just a couple of years ago, published a collection of Campbell's writings about the goddess, simply called the goddess. I think and she was actually on the show. Quite frankly, that uh, that's I'm ringing a bell. Yeah, yeah. And that that's a beautiful volume with a wonderful introduction, uh, having to do with Campbell's long involvement with the uh, archetypal images of the divine feminine, and he well, was a great inspiration. 
in that field. Well, I th- I, th- I think that's a good segue for us to talk a little bit about uh, the connection he, uh, he well he obviously saw between the the goddess and uh, uh, you know uh, well I, I guess you'd say goddess spirituality and um, you know some of the the Grail legends. Um, yes. Yeah. What 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 do you think? Uh, you know, maybe you could uh, mention some of them, or um, sure. um, yeah. Yes. Well, uh, this is a, a major theme for Jungian studies of the Grail romances, and there, are, which I teach here at Pacifica. So there are a couple of points of reference I think here uh, that might be helpful. One is the story of Lancelot and Guinevere as told by uh, Chrétien of Troy. And the story is called The Night of the Cart. And it has to do with the abduction of Guinevere when she's taken off to a to a distant kingdom by a sinister knight called Meliagath. And the kingdom essentially turns out to be a symbolic image of the of the land of the dead. The land Ah, which, Persephone. Yes, it's very much in the, in that uh, Persephone archetypal territory, and uh, Lancelot's job is to rescue her, and in order to do so, he's got to uh, sacrifice his his commitment to his reputation as as a knight in Arthur's court. He's got to endure uh, a series of ordeals, which which actually end up wounding him in the five places that are associated with Christ uh, when he gets to Guinevere finally after crossing the sword bridge. But the uh, the key moment of their uh, reunion uh, occurs in the castle, and it's really one of the most beautiful uh, uh, passages of love poetry ever written in any time that has to do with Lancelot coming to uh, Guinevere's room and uh, tearing his way through the bars of the window and entering her room. But before he does so, he bows to her as, as if he were genuflecting and entering a sacred space so that there's this beautiful conflation of religious idolatry and worship of the Virgin Mary and in these romances a celebration of the power of women. Uh, mm. And their, their their status to affect a dramatic transformation uh, in, in in the lives of those men who are devoted to their service. Ah. So that the the imagery in these romances often harkens back to very 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 old images of the divine feminine yeah. in, in in old Europe and other other domains. Well, I think about the Lady of the Lake, for instance. Um, that yes. felt like a, a real direct rela- a, a, a parallel to a goddess image or archetype. Um, would you yes, agree? Indeed. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, you know, uh, Tennyson, who wasn't treated particularly well by Campbell as, a, as an Irishman, you know, writing about Tennyson was difficult for him and his M.A. thesis. But Tennyson's great, great Arthurian poem is called The Idols of the King. And it essentially begins with the Lady of the Lake and and her 
transmitting her power to to the young king by giving him the sword Excalibur. Uh, and then th- th- at the end of the poem, 12 books later, uh, she reappears and she takes the sword back that Arthur has his servant throw into the lake. So Benson knew what he was doing, that the sense that all things come from the divine feminine at the beginning of the poem. And then during the course of this absolutely marvelous poem, there's a series of encounters with incredibly interesting female characters who evoke this goddess imagery. But the key thing really is when he throws the sword back after Arthur dies and is then taken to the island of Avalon on on a boat with nine goddesses in it yeah. uh, to be to be healed and redeemed. So there's a, there's a definite sense of the goddess as the womb and the tomb and the energy that supports the dynamic of, of, of life, you know, in between. So it's a so very would, strong part of tradition. So would you say that the, it was written the way it was, not really calling these female images goddesses, because at the time right. it was such a Christian uh Christian era, yeah. you couldn't, it, that would have been taboo. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, you know, many of the Grail poets, of course, were were uh, sus- suspicious poets in the sense that they would have been uh, uh, in some way uh, targeted by the patriarchal forces of the church associated with inquisitions and spiritual crusades that attempted to uh, sort of eradicate these heretical groups that were circulating around the iconography of the Grail. Uh, uh, things like the Albigensian Crusade against the Cathars in uh, southern France. Uh, but the interesting thing is that the uh, it was the poets, uh, people like Kratian and Wolfgang von Eschenbach, who were really able to communicate the power of this wisdom uh, associated with figures like the Grail Maiden um, in Fulton von Eschenbach's great poem, Parsifal. So yes, they were they were definitely working under difficult circumstances associated with inquisitions and repression. But somehow the poets managed to sort of, you know, slip under the radar there and get these images into their poems. Um, yeah, because, the same way you know, is true of the folk tale. Well, and I'm thinking about the Arthurian legend, you know, I mean, to hear you tell it, you know, the female, uh, you know, the females were very instrumental, but I, and I'm thinking about some of the past stories, the Arthur legends that I've read, it felt like Merlin yeah. was the real power behind the throne when, um, uh, you know, I guess it just depends on the versions that that, uh, that you yeah. read. Right. Well, you know, that's a very interesting problem uh, given given Merlin's relationship to the energy of the divine feminine. There are beautiful images in the illuminated manuscripts that show Merlin just after he's been born. And he's sitting on on the lap of a woman in the center, but she's got two other women on either side of her. And there's this sense that this is uh, an image of what Robert Graves called the triple goddess. I was just thinking uh, that, yeah, made uh, mother that, crone. That's right. 
and, uh, and and the sense that Merlin's uh, Merlin's energy and wisdom and magic all comes out of his relationship to to the goddess energy, uh, and this comes back in the, at the end of his life in the story that I told about his return to the forest under the auspices of Vivian, Nunu, uh, the Lady of the Forest. So, so now. It, in this, uh, you know, this, you know, uh, this edition that uh, that you know you've just edited, um, do you, does it go much into this? I mean, um, or or where would be the best place to read about, um, you know, you know where the feminine imagery is, you know, more pronounced, and you'd be able to go, ah, there she is. Well. Uh, yes, this this would be a good book to to look at that. Uh, but also, uh, you might look at my book called Sacred Mysteries, um, published by Blue Dolphin, and my chapter on the Grail romances. And this is a very uh, it's a short book. It's written for a wide audience. It's not an academic book, but as in my teaching, it approaches these stories from that particular point of view. Of, of, of the psychological movement from the uh, complexes associated with the mother to the imagery of what Jung called the anima. And from there, however, it goes to the very, very powerful images of the goddess that have survived in a poem like Fulton Fineschenbach's Partifal. So it, it's kind of a theme that goes really all through that particular book. And I also apply it to uh, the folktale tradition mm-hmm. another chapter and uh, it's a book that is subtitled as, uh, as Couples in Quest and it's really uh, focusing on couples and their own spiritual journey and the mythologies associated with relationship and marriage and the importance uh, that the uh, images of the divine feminine play in that process well, that sounds very interesting too. I'm going to have to get you back on the show to talk about some of these other books. That's that's for sure. We do that. Yeah, because we uh, we're obviously uh, don't have enough time to uh, give uh, any of this the 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 time it really deserves. Uh, we're actually starting to run a, a bit short tonight. Uh, we have about yes. seven seven minutes left. Um, so okay. let me. Let me turn it to you, Lance. Um, in this short time we have left, um, what do you think is, you know, what would you like readers to know um, about this this wonderful book, Romance of the Grail, Magic and Mystery of the Arthurian Myth? Well, I think the first thing is the incredible glory of these medieval stories and the great tradition associated with them, with the emergence of these. Uh, Arthurian stories of the Grail in the 12th and 13th century at a time of, of enormous uh, uh, creative achievement in, in, in all over Europe uh, that's of great importance. Um, more specifically, Wolfgang uh, Peneschenbach's poem from about 1220 called Parsifal is not only concerned with the divine feminine and the archetypal role she plays in association with the Grail, but it also ends with the fascinating marriage of uh, Christian Europe 
and the Islamic Middle East. Uh, Parsifal has a half-brother named Hirfiz, uh, whose father conceived during one of the Crusades. And one of Wolfram's primary concerns, which is our primary concern as well, is how do we deal with this incredible conflict that's going on between the, you know, the Western Europe and, and the Middle East, and all of the all of its ramifications. And Fulcrum's uh, solution is so beautiful. It's a marriage of the two traditions that really ends the form. Uh, so I, I would just love for people to to really recognize the beautiful tradition of the literature of the Middle Ages and to see how relevant it is to to our contemporary situation uh, as one of the reasons I'd like people to see the book. Um, the other one is more narrow. I want, I, I would very much like to, to, for people to recognize the extraordinary depth and range and detail and hard, hard work of uh, Campbell as a scholar and uh, as, as an academic, in, in addition to his great ability to communicate. Uh, his scholarship is, is just staggering. And uh, that's all kind of in the footnotes, so it's not up front. What's up front are these beautiful, beautiful stories, and they are timeless and precious. So that's my primary hope for the book. Well, and there's so much we didn't even get a chance to get into. Uh, the wasteland mythology, the uh, anthropomorphizing, uh, mm-hmm. you know. So, unfortunately, um, you know, we're, we're we're just about out of time here. But uh, let's make sure you come back on the show. And, I, and I'd really like to have you talk at one of the Joseph Campbell roundtables coming up in Venice soon. I'll have to check the calendar and pop you an yes. email and see if we can work out something, you know, that works with your schedule. Because uh, you're, you know, obviously just a fount of uh, of wonderful information. You're um, almost, uh, you know, you're almost another Joseph Campbell. <laughs> oh, well, there's only one Joseph Campbell, and he was quite remarkable. Well, you've uh, you you've obviously much. learned learned well in your do in from him, and you are doing him proud. So, um, you know, thank you thank for you. that. So, Lance, uh, please tell um, tell listeners uh, where they can um, find Romance of the Grail, and also uh, the uh, please mention again your other book titles uh, that okay. that uh, you know we barely you know, had a chance to say yeah. anything about. Yeah. Well, the the Romance of the Grail is the number one selection for studies in medieval mythologies on Amazon. So if you if you simply type in Romance of the Grail on Amazon, it will come right up uh, as an easy access to the book. Um, my, my book, uh, written 10, 15 years ago or so, that focuses on the mythologies of relationship in the divine feminine is simply called Sacred Mysteries, myths about couples and quests. And it's, it's, uh, it's not an academic book. I put all the academic stuff in the footnotes, and it's, uh, it's a traditionally affordable paperback, not like a university press book, which is basically you know uh, out of range for most budgets. Um, so those are the titles, 
and uh, again, uh, everybody goes to Amazon these days, and that's where these books are. Okay, great. Well, I'm interested in the couples one. As someone who's been married to my husband for uh, over 30 years now, I, I think oh, it might be fun, fun to read that and see if we can see ourselves in the pages. Well, there are lots of myths and folktales, too. I think you'd enjoy it. Okay, wonderful. Well, Lance, thank you so much uh, for your time tonight, and I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to delve deeper. Uh, It was a really interesting conversation. Um, uh, That's unfortunately what happens sometimes when we have two guests in one night. Um, Next time I have you on, I'll have you at the top of the hour, and we'll just uh, continue the conversation until it's finished instead of being so rudely interrupted here because we have to go no, no need for apologies at all whatsoever. Thank you, Karen, for having me on. Oh, uh, it, my my pleasure. Uh, I, I've enjoyed the chat, and uh, best of luck with the book, uh, Romance of the Grail. It sounds just extraordinary. Thank you, Karen. Okay, good night. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, were we gifted tonight or what with these two great uh, – Great interviews. Uh, I don't know about you, but I had a wonderful time, and I sincerely found myself wishing I had more time with both of them. But, uh, you know, we'll probably have them both back, and uh, we'll just continue the conversation and go down new paths. Uh, but before I say goodnight, uh, I'd like to read you a review about Joe Carson's new book, Celebrate Wildness, uh, by Dana Corby and her blog, The Rant and Raven. When people wonder aloud uh, how the Wicca of Southern California uh, became so much more nature-oriented and wild than the British traditions from which it arose, the one factor they don't take into account but should is feriferia. Uh, Feriferia, a word Fred Adams coined from Greek roots, meaning wilderness festival, is a pagan tradition unlike any other, based on Fred's visions of the divine feminine, the sacredness of eros, and the potential for intentional communities that truly do no harm to anything. It also draws upon themes familiar to Wiccans, such as sacred landscapes, prehistoric beliefs, and the fairy faith. Well, Fred, uh, Fred Adams intended that Feriferia should lead the world into a, a paradisal future in which freedom, eros, and play are our core values, where that, built, uh, where that built by human hands merges seamlessly into the wild and the fae romp among us. Uh, Celebrate Wildness is a unique, exquisite, and profound book. It created in me a sort of homesickness. Dana said, a wistfulness. Fresh. Though it's a short book at only 115 art-laden pages, don't expect to read it quickly. Take your time. Let it sink into your subconscious. What bobs to the surface will be wondrous. Uh, so Celebrate Wildness is an oversized, hardbound book on heavy paper. It's available for $45 from farafaria.org, farafaria.org, F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A.org. And I also want to give a plug to Sage Woman Magazine, 
Um, definitely uh, the magazine out there with its uh, finger on the pulse of uh, goddess spirituality and uh, what's happening in that world. Uh, If you haven't uh, picked up a copy of Sage Woman in a while or you've never picked up a copy of Sage Woman, if you go to their website or call their phone number and tell them that uh, you heard this uh, special offer, on my radio show, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, you will actually get a free copy. Yes, indeed, a free copy. So don't uh, miss that opportunity. And uh, now is where you can get something free from me. This is where you can win uh, a copy of my book, Walking in Ancient Path. If you're the first uh, of, uh, if you're the first three people, yeah, I'll do this for three folks. If you are the first three people to email me at KarenTate108 at ca.rr.com, tell me a little bit about yourself and why you'd like a copy of the book. Remember to give me your mailing address. You uh, will be the winner. We'll take three, like Maiden, Mother, and Crone. And uh, this applies, I'm afraid, only if you're in the United States. I can't send the books uh, international. But um, that's, uh, you know, that's all there is to it. Um, and uh, Walking an Ancient Path is a book about living a goddess-inspired life and hearing about magical experiences uh, and sacred pilgrimages. Um, that special uh, is in addition to the one mentioned earlier in the show, where you can buy two books and get Walking an Ancient Path free. But you have to uh, buy through me. So contact me at uh, KarenTate108 at ca.rr.com and we'll set things up for your purchase or uh, for you to win a copy of Walking an Ancient Path. So um, in closing tonight, uh, I guess I would like to just remind you about the um, mottos of the show here. Uh, And I'll just leave you with the one um, by Gandhi. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Hmm, think about that. How many things can you relate that to in your life or what's going on out there in the world? I can actually think about quite a few. Well, thank you, dear listeners. I appreciate you uh, tuning in to uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine this week and um, next week I will have Gloria Amendola with me we'll be talking about uh, the sacred journey she is going to be uh, taking to France and uh, no doubt uh, we'll be getting into a lot of that uh, that mythology as well uh, in our in our um, in our interview the topic being the divine feminine encoded So I would just like to invite you to have a great week. And remember, I will be at the Goddess Temple on Sunday giving a talk on uh, Earth Day and um, how climate change adversely uh, affects women in disproportionate ways. And uh, just um, trying to help us all uh, awaken, awaken and... uh, because it's time to reconcile our spirituality and our politics. Are you ready to get on board? I hope so. Well, good night, dear listeners. Thank you so very much for uh, tuning in. As I said before, uh, you are uh, the gas in my tank. And uh, I will go ahead and uh, 
close out the show tonight, uh, letting you hear that uh, little snippet that opened the show, Warrior Goddess by Lisa Thiel. Good night. Warrior Goddess, Warrior Goddess, come to me. Warrior Goddess, Warrior Goddess.